From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Pueblo County voted overwhelmingly for Barack Obama twice, but in 2016, it went for Trump. This year, it swung blue again. What changed? People in Pueblo had four years of uh, Donald Trump's a record to look at in making a decision about whether they wanted to sign up for another four years. And Biden won by about 3,500 votes in Pueblo this time. A conversation with the city of Pueblo's mayor. Then, after this election, we may need to change the name of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Perspective today on the messages voters are sending to state leaders. And Denver musician Wes Watkins learned to play the trumpet out of necessity while experiencing homelessness. We'll talk with him about his new music, including the autobiographical single, My City. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Pueblo County has been described as a bellwether in Trump's America and blue Colorado. It's been a Democratic region, voting for Obama by wide margins in 2008 and 2012. But last year, it voted for President Donald Trump. Both Democrats and Republicans have seen this county as an opportunity to win more supporters. Its 2020 results are a mixed red and blue. City of Pueblo Mayor Nick Gratisar joins me to talk about the election. Hi, Mayor Gratisar. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. Let's start with the presidential race. Biden beat Trump by four points in Pueblo County. That's pretty significant because Trump won the region narrowly in 2016. What do you think changed between this election and the last election? Well, I think, you know, Joe Biden, I think, was a better candidate than Hillary Clinton and didn't bring some of the animosity out that Hillary Clinton did for whatever reason. Obviously, she was a very qualified candidate, but she had a lot of baggage that Joe Biden didn't have. And I think that that made quite a bit of difference in this race. Uh, plus, I think the people in Pueblo had four years of uh, Donald Trump's a record to look at in making a decision about whether they wanted to sign up for another four years. And Biden won by about 3,500 votes in Pueblo this time. That's actually pretty narrow compared to the statewide margin, and it's much more narrow than Obama's win in the county in 2008 and 2012. So Obama beat his challengers by double digits. Do you think that in this case it's also a difference in candidates between Biden and Obama, or do you think that Pueblo's electorate might be becoming more conservative? Well, I think Pueblo's electorate has always been pretty conservative. I mean, they are uh, Democrats for the most part, but they're conservative Democrats, Um, And it's tough to compare anybody to uh, Barack Obama and the kind of excitement that he generated up and down the ticket. I I just think that, you know, obviously it's a different time now. We have different candidates. And I sort of viewed this as Pueblo's chance for redemption from four years ago when it supported Donald Trump. And I'm glad to see they took it and that people recognize that uh, what had been promised to them in terms of, you know, bringing back the manufacturing sectors, those kind of things just just weren't going to happen. 
you yourself are a Democrat, and I spoke to you at the Democratic Watch Party during the presidential primaries, and that was back when parties were allowed, obviously. You told me that you were hoping yeah. Mike Bloomberg would be the Democratic nominee. Do you think another Democratic nominee could have gotten more momentum in your area this year? Uh, no, I really don't. I think Joe Biden turned out to be the best candidate that we could have in Pueblo County. I think uh, despite you know the attempts to call him a socialist, People know he's not a socialist. He's been around long enough, been in the Senate long enough. People know he's a pretty moderate guy, sort of down the middle of the road. Uh, So the attempts to smear him with that didn't work in Pueblo County this year. It's also interesting that Democrat John Hickenlooper beat incumbent Republican Senator Cory Gardner by almost 10 points in Pueblo County. How do you think about the difference between Hickenlooper's margins and Biden's? Well, I think the people in Pueblo know John Hickenlooper. Uh, He was the governor of Colorado for eight years. So I think they were very familiar with his record versus Joe Biden is, you know, the name at the top of the ticket. But people weren't personally familiar with him. I think John Hickenlooper did a good job as the governor of Colorado. People remembered that. They appreciated that. And I think that's why he he did so much better. And then there's the race for Colorado's third congressional district. Democrat Diane Mitch Bush beat Republican Lauren Boebert in Pueblo County by 2.5 votes. But district-wide, Boebert narrowly beat Mitch Bush. This race has gotten national attention because Boebert beat incumbent Republican Scott Tipton in the primaries. She ran on a much more conservative platform. Democrats were really hoping for a big win in Pueblo County to offset more historically conservative parts of the congressional district. What do you think Democrats did wrong or Republicans did right to make it such a tight race in Pueblo? Well, this third congressional district has been a tough one from uh, Pueblo's perspective. I mean, we've had candidates run from Pueblo who weren't able to carry Pueblo or barely carried Pueblo. So this this has been always a tough, a tough race for us here. Um, There weren't any debates here, which typically there are, so that people have an opportunity to hear the candidates express um, their views on various things. Here was sort of a, a a war of the battling television commercials that were paid for, for the most part, I think, by outside groups that had, um, you know, an interest in keeping the seat a Republican seat or turning it into a Democratic seat, but that didn't really have much to do with uh, with the issues that affect the third congressional district, which, you know, I think in, are in terms of the economy and health care, those kind of things are the issues that concern the 3rd Congressional District in Colorado. Obviously, uh, with Congresswoman Bobert, I think she'll put the 3rd Congressional District uh, on the map uh, nationwide. So we're hoping we can take advantage of that uh, as, as we move forward. I want to switch gears before we wrap up. Coronavirus cases have risen steeply in Pueblo County. So last week you announced a curfew from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the city of Pueblo. How soon do you expect to get a sense of whether or not that curfew is working to reduce community spread? Well, we think we'll have an idea in two or three weeks. We'll see what the numbers uh, are. We follow the numbers that are released by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment every day. So we, we can see that the curfew is having an effect in terms of keeping people off the streets. What we don't know yet is whether that will have an effect on our numbers. We hope it will, because it was designed to be an intermediate step. Rather than stay at home 24 hours a day, stay at home between the hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. and see if that, that intermediate step will help us get a handle on this virus. 
And why did you decide on that intermediate step, a late night curfew as the course of action to try to get the virus under control? Is it based on what you're seeing and how the virus is spreading in the county? Well, we think, yeah, it's spreading from small groups of people from unrelated households getting together, even either in private parties or, or in bars. Obviously, that curfew doesn't prevent that from happening, although we hope they won't do that. But it at least breaks up the party a little bit earlier or perhaps sends them home from the bar before their judgment gets too impaired and they're not making good decisions for uh, how they ought to interact with other individuals during a pandemic. It's a way of discouraging gathering without strictly banning it. Well, thank you so much yeah. for joining us, Mayor Gratisar. My pleasure. Pueblo's Mayor Nick Gratisar talking with me about the 2020 election results and coronavirus in Pueblo County. We may need to rename CPR's politics podcast Purplish based on the results of the election. Colorado voted for Joe Biden for president and voted out incumbent Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner. Meantime, the ballot measures are wins for both progressive and conservative viewpoints. Let's get perspective now with the Purplish team of public affairs reporters Caitlin Kim, Andrew Kenny, and Ben to Brooklyn. I think there's so much to unpack about what passed, what didn't, mm -hmm. power of control here, what it means for state policies next year, the future of the, the state politically. Yeah, if we start digging into these voting results and numbers, we, we do get a new picture of Colorado politics right now. Oh, a new picture of Colorado politics. I'm sure everyone wants to hear about that. <laughs> I think so, yes. <laughs> right. Well, if you're on this podcast, I can't help you. <laughs> all right, so first off, the race we were all watching, the U.S. Senate race. This is the one race that went as the polls and the pundits expected. It was nationally. The, exactly. As the U.S. Senate race between Republican Cory Gardner, Democrat John Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper is now Mr. Senator-elect. Benta, <laughs> you were following that race. Any surprises for you? Not really. Kind of like you said, the polls ended up being pretty accurate. And we saw through the summer and fall that Hickenlooper had this comfortable lead. So I didn't see anything surprising. I don't think either candidate made major missteps in the main part of the campaign. They stuck to their messages. And a lot of it was a referendum on the president. We heard that early on, and we even heard that on Election Day. Mm -hmm. You know, some people still weren't incredibly engaged in this race. And for a lot of people, it was about control of the U.S. Senate, which right now it looks like likely to remain in Republican control. We don't know that yet. Yeah. But, the Senate as a whole. Yes. Yeah. But this this was obviously a big win for Democrats to flip this seat, mm -hmm. but may not be as monumental if they don't have control of the chamber. Exactly. I think if you look at it, you know, there was only one other gain right now for them, and that was the seat in Arizona with uh, Mark Kelly, now senator-elect, replacing Martha McSally. I think for me, the, the surprise was there was no blue wave. I mean, there wasn't even really a blue ripple when you look at it sort of federally. And even in Colorado, the House numbers are still the same. Four Democrats are going to Congress. Three Republicans are going to Congress. That's right. Lauren Boebert held on to that former Scott Tipton seat. No big change there. It was definitely close, but it was it was a comfortable lead, I think, for her. And for me, I thought it showed like how entrenched sort of politics had gotten, you know, despite all this money that went in, Democrats raised a lot more money than Republicans, but all that money, nothing really yeah, changed. It's pretty wild to think that out of all these races that were being watched so closely, 
like you said, Hickenlooper is one of the only Democratic candidates to really move the needle. Yeah. Um, and I would also say that um, I talked with Assistant Professor Paul DeBell at Fort Lewis College, and he sort of specializes in political psychology. Interesting. And, you know, yeah. And ideally, I was talking to him about the third congressional district race, but like we got to talking about sort of the mood of, of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to me about the role of anxiety and fear in this election this year. But I also think that anger is, is really running high on both sides. And that's, a, that's the notion in many ways of, of partisanship, of digging down. Um, and so I think that, you know, you see this mixture of emotions, negative emotions, I would say, dominating this campaign. This was not a campaign for any side that was really focused on a lot of hope. So I wonder, when you talk about digging down, uh, does this Senate result mean that statewide that Colorado really has dug down as a Democratic state, a blue state? The fact that Democrats made so little progress elsewhere, but blew the doors out on the Senate race here in Colorado. What does that mean? I mean, I think the challenge always was, at least for Gardner, the numbers in Colorado favor. If you just want to be like data and and math, the numbers favor Democrats right now. Um, Just there are more registered Democrats Mm -hmm. than there are Republicans. And it's hard statewide to overcome that. Like you can go overcome that in certain areas where the balance is more equal or where where Republicans yeah. overwhelm. But and I think that picture is far different than it was six years ago when Gardner first got elected. True. And I, I don't want to say it's too early to tell. I mean, certainly Colorado's looking really blue right now, but we'll have to see in two years, depending upon who the president is and which way those unaffiliated voters break. Right now they're breaking towards Democrats. Does that continue? And we see that Trump is unpopular in Colorado. When you look at the final result, he lost mm-hmm. by a very sizable margin. Gardner did better than Trump. Yeah. But, you know, you're never going to make up that big of a deficit. Yeah. Did the results match up for you guys? Did the results match up with what you were hearing on the ground from voters? I don't know. I, I, I wasn't really asking voters what they thought would happen. Um, so I didn't, I was, it was more like, where are you coming from? What are the issues you care about? I think some of the people on the left and the progressives certainly were thinking it was going to be more of a blue wave and they could get Mm. the Senate and there'd be this, they were hoping a full repudiation of Trump nationally, that would really be a reset and we're Mm -hmm. not seeing that. But I also was reading that in national polls and a lot of national coverage. I mean, right before the election, people were saying Texas could really go blue. We didn't see that. So I think some of the voters I talked to were were thinking those things could really happen. Lindsey Graham may be ousted in South Carolina. Texas could go blue. They were getting very optimistic. But still, because of 2016, so many people on the left were very, very cautious. And they were right to do that because those visions of a Biden blue wave were not true. Mm -hmm. Um, What's interesting is that the polling for Colorado was among the most accurate in the nation. And I, I won't speculate on why that is, but it shows that you know politics have gotten relatively stable on a statewide level here. In terms of the results in the state legislature level, one area that I was focused on was Southern Arapahoe County, the suburban area that's among the most closely split in the whole state. And when I went down there, I was curious to hear basically whether voters were going to punish their Republican state representative and senator for uh, affiliation with Trump, essentially, or whether they were going to kind of consider them separately. And we heard from a lot of voters, including some older uh, split ticket voters who said, you know what, we just want to return to normalcy and we're going to take out the entire Republican ballot on the way down. And that actually did end up narrowly happening is that you know, that's one of the only areas where Democrats made some progress. To add to that, though, in a different part of the state, 
it looks like a Republican state senator may win election in a district that's very blue. So those those voters did split that ticket and, and down ballot when we had so many ballot initiatives and so many other races that that would have happened. I, I, we expect it to happen. It's not called, but that will be fascinating. I, I will say when I was in, in the western and southern part of the state, I did hear, talk to a lot of voters, unaffiliated Republican Democrats, who all would also all tell me that, you know, they'd like to consider not the party, but like the person and the issue. Top of the ticket, they were mm-hmm. talking sort of all Republican or all Democrat. But when you drilled down further, like county commissioner level, state representative, state senator level, I think that's when they were more open to ticket splitting. Well, one thing we heard at the state level was this expectation and hope among Democrats that they could continue their blue wave, that they could see another blue wave, just like in 2018, when they made significant gains, flipped the Senate, and really consolidated power. They thought they might keep rolling with that expansion. And instead, we saw that blue wave kind of lap up against its edges. Mostly things stayed stable. They didn't They didn't mm-hmm. lose anything, really. I think that's right. And there weren't a lot of areas where Democrats could have picked up a ton of seats this cycle. No, the only place that they really did that that we can see was that, again, that southern Arapahoe County suburbs where the demographics were getting friendlier to them anyway. And right. they barely eked that out. Yeah. Moving on to one of the other big things that we were following this year were some of the ballot measures. And I'm just curious, Andy, you were following that. How did you see, like, did sort of Democratic, Republican politics play a part in here? Or was it really sort of the issues, the issues, the issues? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure if it was exactly the issues or not, but we did see some really mixed results, as usual, in ballot initiatives. Such a great gauge of all the different moods and persuasions that voters tend to have here. Um, the the best example that we have is that voters simultaneously approved this paid family leave program by a huge margin, and that's going to grant 12 weeks of leave to voters across the state, and it's going to be powered by a fee on income that's going to be equivalent to a lot of people's, about 1% of their income every year will be paid into that. A fee, aka a tax? It's pretty close to a tax. Okay. <laughs> but on the other hand, they also, Colorado voters, by a broad margin, decided to cut their income taxes. So they just kind of rearranged the money. It's going to make next session and covering state policy and finances even more confusing, I feel like. (laughs) Or more exciting. Come on. (laughs) Okay, more exciting. And to me, it's part of this really interesting broader trend where, yeah, people don't seem to like statewide taxes. They cut their statewide income tax. They don't like that general tax, but they will occasionally go for something that's set aside for a specific purpose. Like They also approved Proposition EE, raising cigarette and uh, nicotine taxes because it was earmarked for education. Right. And and a lot of that money is going to fund eventually full-day preschool. Yes. And that is one of the top policy priorities for Governor Jared Polis. And I think if, if that hadn't passed statewide, that was going to be a pretty bruising political fight because – Yes, I think most lawmakers are on board with that. But when money is tight for for the governor to try to get that through, I think it would have been pretty contentious. Yeah. And and it makes me curious, you know, that kind of thing has failed in the past. Education, funding, cigarette funding. I wonder what it was about this year. I'm going to guess this is what I'm curious about. I'm guessing, would it be the pandemic? I mean, you see, like, the pandemic has shown how important education, keeping schools open are, having paid family leave, Mm -hmm. like, where people are home and dealing with child care issues. And I thought maybe that was at play. True. I also think the vaping element helped. I mean, we have one of the highest or did have the highest teen vaping rate in the nation. And I think a lot of people were concerned about that. I also think that this pandemic hammered home for people that, The state's finances are pretty limited. They heard a lot about these big government cuts. So maybe they wanted uh, to kind of shore things up. 
you know, the interesting thing that these ballot initiatives delivered for both sides is a hint at how to get things done in the future for Republicans who may not be in the majority for some time to come. They can still put limits on what Democrats can do by putting these tax cuts in front of voters or imposing new fiscal regulations that voters like through the ballot. Democrats, on the other hand, if they have something they want to get done, like paid family leave, which they couldn't get done for six years, they can put it in front of voters. And if they phrase it just the right way, it might get through. One of the other closely watched ballot measures in the state was the 22-week abortion ban. Uh, What did you guys think about that? So there was definitely national uh, takes on what it would have meant had this Mm. passed, because Mm -hmm. Colorado is one of the only states where providers do offer abortions this late in pregnancy. So there are women that come from other parts of the U.S. to Colorado to get this done. Right. Well, and this is one of the things I was curious about, because, you know, talking about sort of liberal politics and conservative politics, I also think this is an example or it shows the limits of conservative politics. Every time they try and put a ballot measure dealing with abortion mm-hmm. and restricting it, it fails pretty strongly. Maybe it feeds into the perception that Colorado is physically conservative, if anything, and not so culturally conservative. And not I, that it's much of conservative anything anymore. I thought it would be a lot closer. It's, you know, most other states have this type of restriction or something similar. And this is not a personhood amendment or, you know, it's it was much more narrowly focused. Yeah. And another big uh, amendment that you were following was the Gallagher repeal. Yes. One of the most confusing pieces of legislation to ever have to explain to voters in in my experience. Gallagher amendment, real briefly, is a limit on property taxes that when you combine it with other laws that were instituted later in the state's history, adds up to cuts to property taxes that can really hurt rural areas. This has gone to voters in the past, this attempt to repeal it, and previous attempt failed just miserably. Voters wide scale said, no, we kind of like that. We think that protects us. But this time, with the help of a lot of money from people like Kent Theory and Pat Stryker, the billionaires, and bipartisan support in in the state legislature, voters struck this from the Constitution. That's a rare thing. Constitutional change. And there was some controversy about the ballot language. And I think, you know, there's a difference when uh, a group tries to get something on the ballot, they go through a different process to get the language approved. And this went through the legislature. And so when it's referred from the legislature, lawmakers basically get to decide how they want to phrase it. And so they can phrase it in a way that's more favorable to the outcome they're hoping for. And the phrasing, yeah, instead of being like, shall this be moved and that be moved and this be removed, was very much more focused on like, shall firefighters continue to get paychecks in rural areas? You know, it wasn't that exactly, but it was really, it was written in a way that emphasized the impacts. Yeah. And and no one's going to vote against firefighters in rural areas. Apparently not. (laughs) And and I think that that points to one of the interesting things about this direct democracy thing is like, you know, if you look at the paid leave we were discussing as well, if the language is written in a favorable way, you can get voters to approve changes in their taxes that they wouldn't approve otherwise. So I'm curious about what you guys think about these election results. I know that they're not finalized yet, but I think we we know enough. What does it say about the future of the GOP in Colorado? I mean, not a huge blue wave, but the blue wave from 2018 is still here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just been fascinating kind of how there has been such a quick shift. Just six years ago, mm-hmm. Cory Gardner defeated a Democratic incumbent mm-hmm. for, you know, yes, it was a narrow victory, but he won that race. And then 
a couple years ago, we had a split legislative control. Democrats held the House. Republicans held the state Senate. So we have always been fairly politically divided. Um, Have things changed drastically or uh, is Trump just extremely unpopular with with voters in the suburbs? You know, we do have newer people moving into the state that may be more progressive. So I I don't really have the answer on um, whether this is a permanent shift, but certainly I think some of the more divisive rhetoric we're seeing doesn't play well with voters here. And Republicans, a lot of Republicans I talk to are, are well aware of that. And um, But there are divisions within the party about the best path forward. Well, I'm thinking about it at both the statewide level, like uh, federal politics, Senate, president, and also at the legislative level. But to start with that first one, I'm curious whether a future breed of Republicans that if President Donald Trump were to lose this election, who comes up in 2024? Are they a different variety that could be more popular in Colorado? Or alternatively, could, you know, evolution force a different type of statewide Republican to rise up from Colorado and set a new mold? Well, I mean, it seems like the Colorado GOP doesn't really have a deep bench, at least statewide, Mm. for someone who could run for office. So I'm curious, and you might not have an answer, what would be a successful Republican politician here? What what are the qualities they need? Well, maybe we can look to what we're seeing in the statewide results so far where, you know, you've got a a couple of state legislators who appear to be beating the odds. Like you've got Kevin Priola, who is running ahead of Trump by a number of percentage points um, in Adams County. So what is he? He's kind of more of a perceived as more of a centrist moderate. Well, he, he's not just perceived. You know, he definitely aligns with Democrats on a lot of issues. He's a Republican. But I don't really have a clear answer because Cory Gardner was really the shining star of the GOP. And mm. he was the type of candidate that, you know, being being pro-business, not having a contentious personality, you know, likable. Mm-hmm. So I think that they're going to have to grapple with that. I mean, they you know, a couple of years ago, I've been doing stories on the GOP in Colorado trying to broaden the tent and get more women into politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now we're going to be going into a legislative session in January where in the state Senate, Republicans will only have one woman in their caucus. Mm. So there's a lot of ground to make up in, you know, in terms of recruiting a more diverse pool of candidates. Well, does this force a big discussion among the Republican caucus, the party, the state legislators about what they do going forward? Because, like, they may not have lost a lot of ground this year, but they didn't have a lot of ground to lose. So at what point are they going to orient around a new direction? Republicans didn't lose as much ground in the legislature as they could have. Mm -hmm. If they keep a couple of seats that they could have lost, they will have a few moderate senators still in the legislature. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing in the House there aren't as many moderate members. There are some for sure, but two years ago, a lot of those seats went to Democrats. So then it, it does make it more divided. You talk about Republicans opening the tent. At least one of the things I've been seeing on the federal level, the House Republicans are really happy because they've been able to increase the number of women mm-hmm. in the caucus. Including like, in Colorado, right? Including, yes, including Lauren Boebert. <laughs> I'm curious about what you guys think. You know, If a lot of what we're seeing in 2020 and 2018 was a reaction to Trump, in, you know, moving forward, if there are liberal policies that the electorate doesn't like, will we see a reaction against Democrats? It's fully possible. I mean, we, we've seen that voters here, for example, are, are sensitive around tax issues and, and like to make themselves known on that and don't always behave in uniform ways. Yeah, and it's happened in the past. I mean, we have a different electorate now, but Democrats had uh, control of the legislature and the governor's office and passed strict gun laws 
two lawmakers were recalled, and then Republicans picked up a legislative chamber the next election. That was just a few years ago. I mean, my thought is just like we've seen massive reorientations throughout U.S. history of parties and regions, and it's totally not impossible. Although, I don't know, maybe we do become more of like just a permanent blue state, but I, I think that I would not ever rule out major political change in an area that seems stable. I agree with him. No, I'm not going to say anything. That was perfect. That's my yes. extremely hot take is things will change. Not rule anything out. That's I think that's uh, key. Yes. I think that could be our motto. Purplish. We don't rule anything out. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about something we always like to talk about. You know, that time where you go, wait, what? <laughs> We're going to have a special Wait What guest come on right now. Our editor, Megan Verlee. Yes, because she she did a wait posted a wait what in our little uh, in our little group chat. Oh yes, that we were all like wait what? <laughs> so this wait what uh, was actually a tweet from Peg Pearl in Arapahoe County. I think we had uh, some tape from her in our last episode. She's an election official there, mm-hmm. and she posted a picture of a map of the U.S. with a bunch of states colored in in pink, and explained that these were states whose ballots had been dropped off in Arapahoe County drop boxes. <laughs> And that the clerk in Arapaho was dropping into to FedEx envelopes and sending to the correct election officials in other states to process. And I just loved that because in an election that has been all about, like, making it harder for people to vote or, like, all the votes that aren't going to get counted and all this stuff. And here in Colorado, we have an election office that's like, oh, you gave us a ballot from Minnesota? Well, we're going to get that where it's supposed to be in Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, one thing I'm curious about, are these people, like, they live in Colorado, but they're still getting their ballot from California, or do they just have their ballot with them and, hey, I'll just put it in this Dropbox? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's kids who re- go to college in other states and registered there, but then are home now on distance learning. Like, that, that is actually be. a great question. Is like, why are there, I mean, this map has like 25 states colored right. in Right, and it. it's not exactly like ski country that it's happening in or some tourist spot. It's no. Arapahoe County. Yeah. No offense. Well, definite wait what there. No, but and if you're the person getting it, like if you're the person in Arapahoe County and you see this and you're like, wait, what? I've got a ballot from Texas? How oh, are wait, you? what? <laughs> a ballot from, oh, okay, like Washington State? Well, you know what? It's it's a really good symbol of how elections get run in this country, where I think like voters have some expectation that things are going to be like that. It's some national system, but no, it's like fifty different, radically different systems. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of sixty-four different systems in Colorado. They're each locally run at the county level. I think that's one thing. As we've had so much national discussion on mail voting and the pandemic, Mm -hmm. people have started to realize that they what a local process it is. I think we were just talking earlier, you know, what's going on with Pennsylvania and their vote counting? Well, mm-hmm. that's, you know, they have their own specific state laws. So. Well, I, I'm dying to know if this opens up an opportunity, you know, people's frustration with how long the vote count is taking and people's experience with mail voting. Does this open up an opportunity for more of a Colorado style system to spread? We're like, you know, we were like, check mark, we're done, 10 p.m. Well, I will say I was talking to um, Representative Jason Crow on election night, so talking about his priorities, mm-hmm. and he'd mentioned sort of voting and how Colorado should and could be a model for other states. I mean, you know, we talked about Pennsylvania. Like, one of the rules was Pennsylvania couldn't actually start counting their mail ballots until. Election day, which is part of the reason why this vote is taking so long or this count is taking so Mm -hmm. long. Whereas in Colorado, they're allowed to start earlier. I mean, they can't input it in, but they get everything ready and done. Right. They're processing the ballots and verifying the signatures and doing everything they can that they just need to tabulate it. Yeah. 
Well, Amber McMarnold's the former elections director in Denver. Just saw her on MSNBC last night spreading the gospel of vote by mail. And I think I think it has been an opportunity and we may see people look to Colorado after this. Yeah, I know that state lawmakers were advocating for Colorado's model as soon as this pandemic really started earlier mm-hmm. in the spring. I was talking to people about how you really needed to prepare for mail-in voting if that was going to happen. I will say, though, I've lived in countries where you can actually vote on your cell phone. So I think my friends there are just like, why is it so difficult for you, all you Americans? That's an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, hosted by public affairs reporters Benta Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and Caitlin Kem, and joined there at the end by public affairs editor Megan Verlee. You can hear this and all of the election episodes of Purplish at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, or at CPR.org. Okay, when we come back, we'll talk with Denver musician Wes Watkins about his new music and the life-changing reason he learned to play the trumpet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado saw its first confirmed COVID-19 cases in early March. Many cases and deaths later, the state is heading into another peak. What have we learned? And what are health experts advising we do differently in the weeks and months to come? I'm Kate Schimmel with the CPR Newsroom. We're following those big questions as well as daily developments as we head into another season of this pandemic. Stay informed at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. On the concrete face of the big levee that runs through Pueblo along the Arkansas River, there are bright colors blossoming again. It was once the world's largest outdoor mural, but the levee walls were torn down to do repairs. Now, as Shauna Lewis reports, artists are creating new paintings and reclaiming a lost public art space. Out on the levee, muralist Valerie Eisman of Levita mixes paint donated by a local recycling company with some that she bought herself. Is there a science to the color, or are you just looking? I'm just looking. I'm uh, mostly wanting something brighter than this, like, light, light blue. It's kind of like... Eisman is among the first four artists to get paint on the new levee wall. Muralists have to rope up for safety to work on the steeply sloped concrete. But that isn't slowing any of them down. Each artist brings their own unique vision and ideas to the project. It's a colorful mandala. It's what you see as like these sacred geometry designs that a lot of people are really enjoying nowadays. It's a deer with flora and fauna on its antlers. It's meant to represent growth and strength through hard times and just to appreciate nature. I have some Colorado columbines, some crows, and the white butterflies in the fields over here. The piece is coming from I-70 into the mountain view. I love the colors, the sunset, mountains, scenery, and that's what I wanted to capture. So the imagery is going to be of a native woman. Um, she's going to have like four arms, almost like sh- like a shaman. And then there's going to be the spirit, Quetzalcoatl, in the back of her, in like her native tent. It references the Azteca community and um, Toltec, even dating back as far as Olmec. That's Eisman, Kaylin Connolly of Aurora, and Pueblo artist Thomas Garbizo and Celeste Velazquez. They're excited to get the first paint on the levee since construction to repair it started six years ago. I think it's bringing the life back into what people considered the heart of Pueblo. Longtime Pueblo artist and levee mural coordinator Cynthia Ramu was among the original painters and wants to get her work on the wall again. 
Ramu says since the 1970s, hundreds of people helped create the murals that once lined the levee. And then eventually it became like a storybook for a lot of people. Probably 90% of the people I know are not artists, but this was an important place for them, and it was their history. We're actually standing on some of that history. The concrete with the old murals was torn off during the repair project and then ground up and used as road base for the top of the levee. Seeing the old artwork destroyed was gut-wrenching for Ramu and others, so she thinks that the new murals will mean a lot to artists and the community. I'll tell you, I feel 100 feet tall. I feel so excited at the possibility. You know, it's kind of like moving forward. It's just endless possibility for all of them. Pueblo Arts Alliance director Karen Fogelsong agrees. She says public art affects the community spirit, and the Levy Mural Project has a special place in the city's past and its future. One of my favorite things is to see beautiful art go on yucky cement. So let's put beauty on top of it, on viaducts, on levees, on the sides of buildings, wherever we can. Make it beautiful. Vogelsong thinks if Pueblo can regain the world record, it'll draw tourists to the area to see it. The current record is held by a mural in South Korea that's more than 254,000 square feet. So a lot of art is needed again to beat that. It could happen, though. More applications for new murals are rolling in, and creative energy is flowing along this part of the Arkansas River. For CPR News, I'm Shauna Lewis in Pueblo. The future of live music is still in question as the pandemic intensifies heading into winter. But if musicians were supposed to take time off, no one told Wes Watkins. The Denver trumpeter has a new album out today. He's been steadily releasing new music on his Bandcamp page throughout the pandemic, including the autobiographical single, My City. Watkins has performed with Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats and fronted the funk band Other Black. He's also a music teacher at Denver's Youth on Record. He spoke with Colorado Matters producer Alexandra McMahon from his home studio. Wes, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's get right into the song we just heard a moment ago, My City. The first line of the song is, I don't recognize the street I grew up on anymore. This song is based on your experience growing up in Denver. How has that street you grew up on changed? To be real, I haven't been to that street in quite a while, so I'm not entirely sure. But the last time I was there, you know, I grew up out in Montbello. The biggest thing I noticed is that it wasn't a diverse block anymore, which is weird because Montbello was diverse previously. But also just in general, every place I've lived, I've 
woken up to construction. I just moved into a new place. I wake up to construction every day. Everything is is growing, and unfortunately, it's not growing in an inclusive way. We're seeing kind of those effects of gentrification in that area is what you're saying. I mean, in Denver in general, I think that people don't necessarily realize that Denver has always been segregated. Like, that's always been the vibe, and that the war that has kind of been fought on that made quite a bit of progress. And now that same war is being fought and we are losing because we're not aware of it. People always say, just move to somewhere else if you want to see more of everybody. Yeah, I could, but I'm from here. Uh, we could do that or we could just really start fighting for the ability for everybody to live everywhere. Hmm. That's cooler anyway. Yeah. So Denver has been your home for a long time and you've been a visible force in the city's music scene for many years. Tell me, when did your music career get started? Well, church, my mom and my oldest sister, they sang all the time. So when I was like a kid, I was singing harmony by that point. Middle school had a great trumpet teacher by the name of Martin Martinez who showed me a lot of things. And then I went to Denver School of the Arts for high school. And then I ended up homeless and I didn't have anything to do. I didn't know what to do coming out of art school except for play on the streets. That was birthed out of necessity. I think that while I don't necessarily have some killer trumpet chops. If people hear me play, they can tell it's me because I played like 14 hours a day. Oh, wow. And and speaking of those years that you spent busking, you, I know that Denver's tourism office actually has a photo of you busking. <laughs> so get, tell me more about when you look back on those years, what, did, what kind of significance does that hold for your music career? Because you talked about how playing trumpet kind of came out of necessity. Pretty much every band I've been in, I encounter the story where people are like, actually, I used to see you downtown. Or Luke Mossman from Night Sweats, he tells me, actually, man, the first time I saw you, I remember I'm going going to music school and I get on the light rail, have my guitar and I'm all stoked. And I look and I'm like, damn, I'm not even doing shit. that dude's doing it. And I was asleep on the light rail, like cradling my trumpet because that's what I used to do. I think one, visibility was high. Two, bitterness was actually pretty low. Now, I had bitterness about being homeless and all sorts of personal things with my family at that time, you know, but I didn't have bitterness so much with anybody else because if there's one thing about the homeless community, it's inclusive. All of you are homeless. <laughs> well, this summer you released the record Sweet Talk. With the stars up above You're singing about some heavy topics on this album, civil unrest, police violence, the legacy of slavery in the U.S., but you've said this music could come from a kid's show, like Schoolhouse Rock. Why did that pairing interest you? Okay, Mason's is a good example of a song that's heavy sounding and is heavy. I think it has probably the heaviest imagery in the album. But that, like, you can't just come at people with that. They don't want to listen to it. They don't react well. They get defensive. And if people are getting defensive often about me talking about race, I can be a little bit aware and maybe a step ahead. So if you make something that's like happy sounding, built you this 
for free. You know, like it that changes everybody's perception. I'm giving them a musical cue to listen. And that's what Schoolhouse Rock did. But still, it had to go through such a censor. I have hung out with some little kids in my time. And little kids have foul mouths. And I don't cuss very much. So I think that the world is ready to have more of a chronicalization or, or, you know, just chronicles of what our actual history is. There's such an intentional move to keep information out of the general public that we end up in this place where people don't really know. People didn't know necessarily that Denver was segregated. Took me a long time to really figure out just how segregated Denver was. But if you had an accessible medium for that, then all of a sudden we can change the world. Hmm. And we're obviously in a pandemic right now and we don't know when live music will return to normal. But I understand you've been reassessing your target audience for when that happens. Who do you hope to be performing for? Well, black people. I mean, people of color. I didn't know Red Rock existed until I was like 21 years old. And I'm from Denver. When you think about a $40 show that's at Red Rocks, and that's a kind of cheap show these days. And then you have to think about who has a car to get there. The light rail didn't go. It didn't used to go there. And now it does. But still, who has $40 and the ride and all that? They can't go to shows. So I think that music needs to be offered to people of color and just kind of oppressed groups more. But also, I want to be playing for everybody because the people that I need to be talking to, they are maybe not the ones who have been saying it the entire time. So historically, do you feel like Denver's music scene has been more accessible to people who come from privilege or have a certain backgrounds? I'm just going to say it. White people? Yes. A cool thing happens in an oppressed community out of necessity to feel better, to have hope. And then an affluent culture, which is in history predominantly white, comes and is like, oh, this is cool. We're going to take this and make this just for our people. So they might use me to get that, but it's not for everybody. And I think it's the artist's job to actively combat that. Yeah. I understand that you have some new music coming out in early November. Tell me a little bit about that. A buddy of mine recently did a mural of me, and it's in between Park and 24th in that alley. It's my big grumpy face looking out over Denver in disdain. I mean, not really. It's But it's amazing, and I, it's something I never dreamed. So I was like, well, I've been writing a lot about race, and that's important, and we should be talking about it. But in that, I have to start to think about myself and my role in that. And I was like, well, I need to dream bigger instead of dreaming of like inevitably having a conversation about race and I speak on it and I'm heard. I don't have to walk out the door and have to even worry about having that conversation. So I think I'm going to call it dream bigger, but I'm not really sure what I'm going to call it because I always I just do that last minute. No. And did the music on this album what was your inspiration behind it? Did it come from this this mural that was being done of you? Yeah, I mean, that it came from the experience of walking home one night and the cops putting me in cuffs for 45 minutes, me being in a really low place after that happened. Was in a low place, ran into that buddy who'd been asking me to do a mural, said, well, come by, let me take a picture of you tomorrow. So I did, and then the next day the mural was up. In Avatar, Legend of Korra, Uncle Iroh says... Oftentimes, in your lowest place, you will experience the greatest change. And that was it for me. It was that I 
was in this low place. And then to have the experience of this mural coming up and feeling like, okay, I can keep doing what I'm doing and be okay. That's kind of what the album talks through. And the fact that I think all of us need to be dreaming bigger like we were when we were kids, you know? That's lovely. Wes, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Denver trumpeter Wes Watkins speaking with Colorado Matters producer Xandra McMahon. The pandemic has not slowed his creativity down. Watkins has a new album out today and performs every Thursday at Gerard's Pool Hall in Denver. Let's leave you with another of his new songs from his new album out today, Webbed Feet, featuring Thomas Jennings. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. I'm trying to find that piece of heaven.